Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. We have a terrific show for you today. NYU professor Aswath Damodaran joins us in studio. He teaches corporate finance and valuation at the Stern School of Business. And full disclosure, I'm a graduate of NYU's business school, but I never got the chance to take Professor Damodaran's classes because he taught during the day and I got my MBA at night while working at Bloomberg. So this is uh, very exciting for me on a personal level. Uh, as well. Uh, but actually, a listener reached out to me on Twitter and suggested Professor Demoterin for the show, and I'd thought about it previously, uh, and it was a great reminder to me, so I'm glad we are able to make it happen. So, Professor Demoterin, welcome to Deal of the Week. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, so, originally, I wanted to have you on the show because you are a skeptic of M&A's value creation, and I think a lot of the guests on this show who are working in either banking uh, or the law, and they're sort of working on deals real-time, they either willingly or unwillingly lose the skepticism and maybe what M&A really means for companies. So to start, what can we say empirically about most M&A deals in terms of value creation or destruction? If, if I were to summarize what we found about M&A deals, here's what we find. First, if you look at the date of the transaction, target company stockholders obviously make a lot of money. The bankers make a lot of money. The consultants make a lot of money. The lawyers make a lot of money. The only group that's left out are the acquiring company shareholders. So that's the first. The second is if you follow through an M&A and look at them three, five years later, saying that's a much fairer look, most M&A deals fail in terms of delivering what they were supposed to deliver. That magical synergy we talk about at the time of the deal almost never shows up. It doesn't show up in 84% of all deals. Third, if you look at the M&A process, I don't think there is a more conflicted process on the face of the earth. (laughs) This is the most screwed up process you can think of, and that's why I think so many bad deals go through. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here, and we'll try to get to all of this stuff. So let's start from the beginning here. So if the acquiring company's shareholders are losing out, and then three to five years, the synergies don't come true, why are so many companies buying other companies? Because managers have their own incentives. You want to build empires, you want to grow faster, you get judged based on what you deliver in terms of earnings and revenue growth. So managers are behaving, I think, consistently with the way they're being measured, which is analysts measure them on how quickly you're growing, are you doing acquisitions? So the way we judge managers, I think, pushes them into growing faster. And the way you grow faster is go out and do a big acquisition. Okay, so so there's one conflict of interest. And there's a whole slew of them involved in this process. So Let's try to sort of break this down from the beginning. So the way a deal is done, executives of companies hire advisors, bankers, Mm -hmm. lawyers, um, to theoretically help them make a decision about whether or not to acquire a company. But in fact, the incentive process here is that many of these advisors are actually being paid only if the deal is completed, correct? It is an absurd process. It's a process where deal makers are being asked to be deal analysts. That's like, I mean, the analogy I give in my classroom that some people like and some people don't is asking a banker whether a deal makes sense is like asking a plastic surgeon whether there's something wrong with your face. (laughs) Of course he's going to say the deal makes sense, not because he's a bad person, but because that's where he gets his payment. 
So I think we need to clean up the process. Deal makers cannot be deal analysts. It does not make sense. And I think managers are, are, are spending other people's money. It's easy to spend other people's money. So we need boards of directors to step up. So these conflicts of interest cut to the heart of corporate governance. Who runs companies? Who manages companies? Who are they accountable to? So this all seems fairly straightforward on the surface and sort of indisputable. How did we get here and why hasn't the system already changed? Because when there's a lot of money being made out of the ecosystem, it, it's going to have inertia. It's going to, the status quo is going to fight back. There are a lot of people who make money off an M&A deals. They're not going to go down without screaming. And, you know, and I think that's basically it. It's just too much money to be left on the table. So really a similar rationale to, to you know, as we sort of go through this election, uh, and, and there are many complaints about how the political system uh, has, has been messed up for years. Yeah. Uh, and certainly you would think that the reason that has not changed is the same sort of thinking where, well, you'd have to rely on the people in power to change the system. Right. And why would they change it when the system elected them? Now, I think the way to think about this, if we want to stop these bad deals from going through, we as stockholders have to wake up. Wake up and it's just like in a democracy. Voters have to exercise their right to vote and make change. If shareholders just keep sit back and complain but don't do much about this, this will keep going and going and going. There is no end in sight. So the reasonable way you're advocating for this to stop is basically shareholders to vote down almost every deal. Or at least the deals that don't make sense. It doesn't have to be every deal. I'll tell you the subset of acquisitions historically where your odds are better. You're better off buying private companies than public companies. So if you told me you're going to go out and buy a private company, your odds are much better. You're better off buying small companies relative to yourself than big companies. You're better off buying companies for cost savings rather than growth synergies. And you're better off paying for companies with cash than with stock most of the time. So you could structure an acquisition process that's value creating. You just have to be disciplined and you have to stay focused. So... The argument that I hear from a lot of CEOs about why they don't do small acquisitions is they feel like small acquisitions don't move the needle. So if you're a big company, for instance, we just saw this with AT&T yeah. buying Time Warner. I know people around that told me the reason AT&T targeted Time Warner was that smaller content acquisitions wouldn't move the needle. Uh, what is the pushback to that? Well, moving the needle doesn't create value. If by moving the needle you mean b making your company bigger, you can make your company better, bigger and less valuable at the same time. So it depends on what you're paying to make your company Well, maybe bigger. the argument there would be uh, that we want to move the needle, and by that we mean we want to uh, change how our industry is run as quickly as possible. Well, I wish that were the case. You know, if you're really going to disrupt your own business, doing these large acquisitions is not going to do it. In fact, you're setting yourself up to be disrupted by somebody else if all you're doing is acquiring other large players in the same business. Because of the time of integration and the value destruction that goes along and with also, that? And also, if you're a large player, you're already in the status quo. The nature of disruption is it comes from small players who have nothing to lose. So by making yourself larger, you actually make it more difficult for you to disrupt the business rather than less difficult. Um, 
So let's talk about another conflict of interest that you uh, that you've written about, which is uh, the quote unquote fairness opinion. So uh, for those that are not familiar, when deals are announced, uh, they they often come, especially larger deals, they often come with a quote fairness opinion, which is an outside advisor that's brought in to basically say, is this deal done for a fair price? Uh, what is wrong with that system? Well, I think, again, it's a pro the problem is the way that people get paid for fairness opinions is first they get paid outlandish amounts of money for doing a valuation. And I look at a valuation. Tens say, of millions of dollars? Tens of million, no, perhaps not tens of millions, seven, ten, ten million. And the bigger problem is even that payment is contingent on the deal happening. Mm -hmm. How do you get a fairness opinion where you tell me that I will pay you 80% of that deal fee if the deal goes through? Now tell me whether the deal is fair. <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I mean, our... Uh, uh, to, to that degree, has there been any study about how many fairness opinions come back saying the deal is not fair, don't do it? In fact, here's a very simple test. Have you known of a deal that ever got stopped because you could not get a fairness opinion? No, I don't. You would just move on to the next exactly. bank and get a new fairness opinion. I mean, opinion. I, uh, the problem here is it's like Gresham's Law, which is if you're a good banker, you're going to get displaced by bad bankers because there's always going to be somebody who's willing to give that fairness opinion for seven, eight, ten million dollars. So unfortunately, this process actually fosters bad valuation and bad practices because of the conflict of interest. Uh, so what is the way around that? Is it simply to just make the payment structure different? I think it's got to start with the, with the judges in, in the Delaware courts. In fact, I put together a questionnaire that I've I've offered to the Delaware court judges for free. Six questions that they can ask bankers who do fairness opinions that I think would strip this process of the delusion that we see around it. Such as? So, starting with how do you get paid? How did you do that? Where did you get the cash flows to do evaluation? You know that in most fairness opinions, the managers supply the cash flows. I mean, how can you tell me it's a fair valuation if you're getting the numbers from the managers of the company? Okay, so that brings us to sort of the next conflict of interest I want to talk about, which is valuing companies. So this is really your bread and butter. You teach a course on valuation. It is really highly esteemed at NYU. I can tell you firsthand. Um, what are some of the problems with how investment bankers go about valuing companies? First, I think they need to stop using the word value. When you do acquisitions, it's all about pricing companies. I wish they'd stop turning out these really bad discounted cash flow valuations when you know their heart's not in it. I'd be much happier if they just told me, look, we're going to price this company at six times EBITDA and move on. Stop this delusion of acting like you're projecting out cash flows, coming up with a discount rate, coming up with a value when, you're not, when your heart's not in it. So I'd rather that you do a good pricing than a bad discounted cash flow valuation. Uh, more with Professor DeMotorin uh, on why M&A and its sort of policy and the way that things have come about is flawed. But first, quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. We're back with Professor DeModeran. Um, a couple other things I want to talk about on why the structure of M&A is flawed. One that, another one that you write about that I really think is never talked about at all, but is worth talking about, particularly for my profession as a journalist trying to break news on this, is the secrecy that goes about uh, in how these deals are created. So uh, th this is the way I look at this. If I want to buy a house, 
Um, I don't need to keep that process secret between um, three or four people. I can be out in the open and say, in fact, the whole structure of buying a house is done this way. Here's my bid. Everyone else, you, you can tell whoever else you want to about my bid. I can tell you, and then you sort of figure out, is this the fair price, and you move on. The way M&A is done is so secret that, A, only a few people know about the deal, even within a company, so your circle is small, and B, the bids themselves are secret so that perhaps you're not getting your ultimate fair price from how this is done. Is that problematic? I think the motivation is good, which is if you let these deals go in the public domain, you're afraid that people will be speculating and trading on these deals. The problem, though, is it makes the problem worse. By keeping these deals secret, what you effectively do is you let a few players actually, we know prior to acquisition announcements that stock prices start to go up. So we know somebody's getting the information. So by keeping the deal secret, you're not actually keeping the information from the market. You're actually restricting the information to a very few people who are now able to trade on it. So you might be better off just you know, putting it out in the open, letting everybody see what it is and letting them trade on it. And look, there's, there's definitely evidence for that. I mean, several deals that I personally have broken that I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, last year or two years ago, um, when I broke the news that Microsoft uh, was looking at buying Salesforce, and then just recently this year, um, about a month ago or so, that Disney was interested in buying Twitter. Uh, and also, I believe the Wall Street Journal maybe broke the story that Salesforce was looking at Twitter. Those stories came out in the open. Shareholders more or less revolted against right. the buying companies, and none of those deals happened because the information did get out there. So you'd have to think to yourself, well, wait a second. If the news hadn't broken on these deals, would these bad deals have happened? And who is that benefiting? Right. And I think that's absolutely true. I think that it's good to bring these deals out into the open. In fact, if I were a Tesla stockholder, I would not vote for the Tesla Solar City deal. But the fact that it's in the open means that it's good that people will get a chance to look at the deal and vote on it. And I'll whatever the final outcome is, I think at least it will be a fair outcome because stockholders got a chance to vote on it. Is it also problematic that because the nature is so secretive, there are too few heads in the room? Therefore, if you opened up the process and you made a whole bunch of people involved in this, shareholders, people at your company, et cetera, maybe you would come to a better decision simply just because you had more minds voicing? It's actually what you have is one additional person in the room called Mr. Market. Remember Warren Buffett? You know, acronym for markets, having Mr. Market in the room is actually a tremendous advantage because the market passes judgment, I think, much more fairly than the bankers and the managers involved in the deal. See, so this is for all of you that are listening to this that work in the profession. This is why you actually should have an open dialogue with reporters and not fear us when we're trying to break news on your deals, because actually in the long run, it will work out better um, for your share shareholders. Um, so look, we talked a lot about all of these flaws in the system, and yet October was the highest deal volume month on record ever. And right before a theoretically uncertain election, too. Has this surprised you? No, I think that deals have a kind of force of their own. Once they get started, it's tough to stop them. And there's a Me Tooism about this process. If everybody else is doing deals, you feel the urge to do the deal, too. So, in fact, a lot of companies do acquisitions as defensive acquisitions. They say everybody else in the sector is buying companies. We have to do it to kind of keep up with them. So it doesn't surprise me that there are lots of deals happening and they happen at the same time. Deals ebb and flow. If they stop, they all stop. 
So I think that's the nature of the process. So let's go back to the the basic core conflict of interest for how advisors are paid uh, and, and therefore uh, sort of giving false advice. What is the best way around this? Should advisors simply be paid up front, not contingent on it, on if a deal happens? Are there other suggestions think, you have? I think bankers should be paid for what they do best, which is doing the transaction, the actual nuts and bolts of doing the deal. I think the person who analyzes the deal, decides whether it's fair or not, has to be somebody who gets paid just for doing that appraisal. And that payment does not, it should not be contingent on the deal happening. It's common sense. I'm amazed that we don't have that as part of the M&A process. It, it seems completely silly to yeah. me. I, I agree. I'm not really sure why that has evolved the way it has, other than to your point, which is for some reason it did many years ago, and then it just never changed because no one's wanted it to change. Well, I think the reason it's kind of stayed where it is is people want lots of deals to happen. That's the reality. Right. You know, whether they're good deals or bad deals is almost irrelevant. There's too much money from the deal-making process for you to want to slow it down. And this this even goes to the executives at companies who are often, particularly the target company, who are often paid enormous sums of money on change of control provisions, right? Yeah, uh, the, the money flows all over the place. You can have acquiring company CEOs who get judged based on earnings per share increase. Right, accretive. Accretive, one of the most wasteful words in valuation. Because a deal can be accretive and be an awful deal. A deal can be dilutive and be a great deal. But bankers like to use it because it gives this patina of this deal is a good deal. Look, it's a creed of my earnings per share went up. So I think because of the way we compensate managers on a per share basis, there is going to be this push towards deals that look good on the surface in terms of accretion, but are actually terrible deals in terms of share. And, and there have been some studies, right, that have that have actually looked at market reaction based on accretive versus dilutive deals. And 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 I can't remember what the exact time horizon is. Maybe you do, but basically the what the market has showed is they actually don't care if a deal is creative or dilutive. That, that's why I like to have Mr. Market in the room. We we tend to say bad things about markets, how dumb markets are, how crazy investors are. Collectively, I would take markets over any set of bankers on any day. There's one stat I want to throw out here. Uh, it's one that you referenced right. in, in one of your blog posts. Uh, a study of uh, over 12,000 acquisitions by large market cap firms from 1980 to 2001 estimated that their stockholders lost $218 billion in market value because of these acquisitions. Um, so I think that that number may have improved in recent years. Um, I'm wondering, does that mean that we are actually making some progress because the market destruction is lower, or there's some other reason just, involved it, there? It, we go through, you know, it's ebbs and flows. There are periods where acquiring company stockholders actually get a little above zero, so you actually start to make money, and periods where you overreach. I think that's that's more reflective of how much this is a zero-sum game. Because if you overpay for a target company, and there are no synergies, and as I said, 84% of deals have no synergies, any premium you pay has to come out of your company, your shareholders' pockets. So I think it's, it's the nature of the process is there are a lot of deals and there's very little synergy occurring. You have to almost by definition see acquiring company shareholders lose a fair amount of money. And that's why it's often better to buy these small companies, because at least you're not leaving too much money on the table when you overpay for a company. Is there any chance in your mind that some of what your suggestions on how to reform the general system actually happen in the coming years? Are there one or two suggestions that you think, you know what, we're actually making progress here, or you know, the, the signs indicate that this actually could happen? You know what would what would make a change is if you saw the board of directors of a company that's done a bad acquisition at the next annual meeting, 
we actually voted out the board. And that's why I said it's got to come from shareholders. Shareholders have to get pissed off enough that they do something about it. Because if we don't do something about it, this process is going to, is going to continue. I'm guessing, based on all of this, for that recent AT&T Time Warner deal that I talked about, which is the biggest deal of the year, look, I can't see what the synergies in that deal are. They did announce, I think, that there were some synergies, but honestly, I, even on the face of it, that seems like sort of a fictitious thought to me. Is there any reason that you know an AT&T would do a deal like this and it might be a good idea? There's always potential ways you could look at synergy. I, I think the entertainment business is in a state of change. I don't know what it'll look like 10 years from now. So there might be a way that by combining these two companies, you're better positioned to take advantage of that entertainment business. But here's where I find fault with them. If that is your rationale, show me specifics. Stop using synergy as kind of a buffer against discussion saying there's synergy. I want to see specifics if I'm a shareholder in AT&T before I go out and pay that premium. Professor Demodorin, uh, NYU professor of corporate finance and valuation, uh, giving us a healthy dose, I think, of skepticism on the way M&A works, uh, not only in this country, but really around the world, but particularly in this country. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So that's it for this week's edition of Deal of the Week. Thanks for listening, as always. Remember, you can catch us on iTunes or on Bloomberg.com or on the Bloomberg Terminal. And please rate and review the show while you're there, if you're listening on iTunes or any other podcast app you use to listen to our show. Uh, and follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Professor DeModern, are you on Twitter? Yes. How can they follow you? At Aswat DeModern. See you next week. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.